Greetings and salutations. Hi. I'm Josh Belcher. Get the super sauce. I'll change into my super suit. <laughs> this is Uncharted. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in to the Josh Belcher Uncharted Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Belcher. Hope you had a really awesome week that trickled into an even better weekend. Have a fantastic lineup on the podcast this week. Drumming legend Roger Earl of Foghat and Earl and the Agitators is on deck to speak with us. The father of Nashville rock and songwriter extraordinaire Buzz Kaysen is on board as well. And brand new hip-hop artist who has taken the world by storm just bad with his brand new release and contribution to the hip-hop cause, XXV. We talk about all that and more right here on the podcast. And away we go. The father of Nashville rock, living legend, Buzz Kaysen graces us with his presence on the Josh Belcher Uncharted podcast. He's just released a brand new album with his sons titled Buzz and Sons 2020. We talk about that and a lot more coming up next. Um, love the album. Um, I really like uh, listening to Soldier Love. I really also like uh, Let Me Be. Let Me Be is a really groovy song that I that I really picked out that I thoroughly enjoyed. Sounds like it should be in a movie somewhere. Oh yeah, thank you, Josh. It's good to be with you. Uh, yeah, those those two songs are special to me, of course. Soldier of Love on there is sung by my son, Taylor Kaysen. The album is called Buzz Kaysen and Sons, of course. Uh, <laughs> yep. 2020 is the title. But, uh, yeah, Let let Me Be just kind of came to me, and I said, why not write this, you know? <laughs> sure. And, uh, it's a it, real nice guitar work by Anthony Crawford on there. Yeah, it's uh, very well done. Well. Uh, speaking of that album, which is it's great through and through, I enjoyed uh, every song on it. I listened to it's a, uh, it's a uh, very very. It'd be a great, it's a great kind of road trip kind of album. Um, what made you decide right now to to do such a uh, such a work with your sons? Uh, what what made you decide to get it all, uh, you know, collaborated and everything and put it out in 2020? Well, uh, you know, Josh, I had a a, a few sides cut. Uh, like what can I do for you was recorded as far back as 2017. I just do random sessions with uh, Anthony Crawford down in Loxley, Alabama, and then I do uh, the more studio type sessions up here at Creative Workshop. And I just had a few cuts done, just solo. And then we came up on the Montana song. I wanted the boys to sing on it because it's basically it's the lead cut on the album, and it was. Uh, the story of when uh, he, the boys, and and their mother and I took a, a trip to a, a ranch in Montana, and uh, mm-hmm. some of the events that happened there, and that, that kind of inspired the song. And so, and I used them on on why the second cut on harmonies, and uh, of course Taylor on Soldier of Love. So I, I thought, hey, why not tag it with uh, Buzz and Sons, you know, since they're so involved with the project. Yeah, that's really, really awesome to, to do a family thing. And plus, with the harmonies, you get that feel of like the Everly Brothers. Just to, the genetics all mixed in there together sounds really, really good. Yeah, we uh, we blend pretty well together. I hope to do more 
uh, songs like that with the guys. Uh, of course, their lives are busy, but we just all congregate over here at the studio in Berry Hill, and you know they're pretty quick on learning stuff, so uh, we we have fun doing it. Yeah, you started that whole studio thing in Berry Hill, and then everybody kind of followed suit after that, I think, uh, from what I've read, anyway. Yeah, the, uh, 1970. This is our 50th year. Wow. And, uh, yeah, we're celebrating with a, um, a mural, uh, what, what we call our star mural that's going up on the fence uh, out uh, in the parking lot here at Creative Workshop. It's about a 50-foot long a mural of of the artists over the years that have recorded here, you know, going all the way back to 1970. And wow. uh, it was done by Scott Gwynn, who's a noted artist and painter here in town. And he did these murals. He did a great job on them. And we're going to unveil it on July 7th over here. So uh, awesome. uh, wow. looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I as well. I, I've been down, uh, how close are you to Melrose Avenue? Well, uh, Mel, <clears throat> Melrose is is really on Eighth Avenue, you know, um, uh, and it's where the old Melrose Theater was, which later became a video production, and now it's uh, it's a restaurant, uh-huh. cinema, I think it's called, and um, we're we're just a few blocks from there. Uh, Berry Hill is is a uh, is kind of nestled in between uh, Thompson Lane and uh, and Berry Hill Road down there, and uh, which is just about two or three blocks away from Eighth Avenue, which is considered Melrose. Sure. Uh, yeah, I was trying to find as far as like because I know over there where Blue's house is and everything, and I was, I want to see that mural when it becomes available. So I guess I can just look it up on Google Map or something, Google Earth. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're we're west of uh, um, where where House of Blues is. House of Blues is on East Iris, and we're over on uh, corner of Azalea Place and West Iris. So it's oh, okay. pretty pretty easy to find. Yeah. Well, good deal. What? Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, anyway, I wanted to bring back up this. Uh, you know, Soldier of Love. I, I love your version and some of the uh, greatest musicians on earth have recorded it and hold it in the highest regards, but. One question I had for you about it, um, I noticed that Arthur Alexander cut it, and I wondered if you had uh, a story, or do you know if the Beatles cut it because of their love for Arthur Alexander, because those guys really liked him, and so did the Rolling Stones. Yeah, that's that seems to be the reason. Um, uh, we, Tony Moon and I wrote that song back in 62, and uh, Noel Ball was producing Arthur Alexander. Noel helped get um, Arthur and his producer Rick Hall on Dot Records, and Noel was a real personal friend of Randy Wood of, of Dot Records, and he he was a mentor of mine in the very beginning of my career when he had his Saturday Showcase television show here in Nashville, and that's where I met the Casuals, and we went on to have a, a quite a little career there. And, yeah. and, but anyway. Noel said, uh, if you guys, he told me and Tony, he said, if you guys write something, I may record it with Arthur. So we got busy and we wrote we wrote that song in a little one-room apartment uh, Tony had rented over in Bellmead. <laughs> I tell you, Bellmead's kind of the high-dollar section of Nashville. I tell everybody, 
That's the only R&B song probably ever written in Bell Need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably so, right. <laughs> so, man, I mean, we were thrilled to death with Arthur's record of it. If you've ever heard it, it's, it's a great version. And they had already recorded Anna by, by Arthur. And uh, we just we just figure they were in tune. I've I've never been able to ask uh, any of the Beatles because I don't know any of them. The only one I ever met was I met Ringo one time. But uh, we uh, we just assumed that it was for their admiration of of Arthur that they recorded the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, I thought Arthur had had toured England, but I've never been able to to, to confirm that. But but they recorded it in in '62. Uh, I, I mean, just right after the record came out, and uh-huh. it was—it it really turned out to, to kind of be a two-sided record because there was another song on the flip flip side called "Where Have You Been," which got a lot of attention, and "Soldier of Love" was kind of just riding on it, its skirts of that. But uh, uh, they, you know, they put it out on the. Um, they first recorded it at the BBC, at the live at the BBC um, network um, show, uh, and the kids were taping it like on the on the cassettes in those days, um, and uh, and it was circulating like just kind of like a bootleg type thing, and uh, we didn't find out about it. Tony and I didn't find out about it till 1980. I don't know how we went that long without knowing about the cut, but uh, <laughs> it was among about 60 cuts that later showed up on the, uh, the album live at the BBC whenever Capitol bought the tapes from BBC and, and released the whole conglomeration of songs that the Beatles had recorded. Uh-huh. What's interesting is that I, I played that same show in 1964, with the crickets, uh, I was I had I had replaced Jerry Naylor as the lead singer briefly in in '64, and um, we we toured England and uh, we had out a record that was doing pretty pretty well over there, and um, so we we did that show and you you don't have any there's no slack you 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 cut it live and that's why there's there's actually some mistakes. Uh, John Lennon muffles the word, but someday you're gonna retreat. He he just he just kind of muffles it on the on the cut on on the Beatles. But some folks thought that it should have been a single by the Beatles at, at one point. But uh, we were just blessed to to have a cut with them, you know. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a that's a very thrilling thrilling thing indeed. Which is. Every version, you know, the Beatles version is a little different than Arthur's and everything, but uh, uh, it, it just it, it was a fascinating journey. And you had mentioned Rick Hall, and it was all tied into Muscle Shoals. And uh, I'm sure you spent some time at Fame, uh, and I was, you know, you were talking about him and everything. And I, it's just neat how it all ties in together. I just uh, I like I like stories like that. I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, and uh, Marshall Crenshaw did a, a a good job on Soldier of Love in the '80s on his. Uh-huh. His Warner Brothers album. We were fortunate to have the only, only outside song on there. Yeah. Uh, I got to sing it with him at, uh, here at Nashville one time. It uh, done at the. Uh, uh, it was a show that the Long Players were doing. Uh, the Long Players do a 
you know, do an album tribute several times a year, and uh, they had Marshall on it, and so we, we kind of did our version together of Soldier of Love. It was fun. Yeah, it's, then, a, it's, a, it's a great great timeless work, that's for sure. But um, I wanted to ask you this. Every time I've heard your name, and, you know, I've seen you in a couple of rounds and songwriters and, and things like that, uh, I've known you as, the, you know, they regard you as the father of Nashville rock, and I've known that. But I've heard stories that I'd like to hear from you how you got that title. Well, I don't really know who who pegged it. Uh, I know Alamo Jones on XM Satellite on Outlaw Country started started kind of spreading it around. But I guess because um, the Casuals, my band, were the first rock and roll band in Nashville, mm-hmm. and uh, we 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 kind of came along kind of before the Almond Joys, before the, you know, uh, the guys got together and, and started that, Greg Allman and Dwayne. And uh, it, there there was a lot of little, we, we called them combos at the time, back in the late 50s and the 60s. Uh, uh, you guys got a combo, and and, and then, then you would play a combo, like they would have a combo party, you know. So, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but anyway, we... We really were kind of at the right place in the right time because we hooked on opening shows for Jerry Lee Lewis. Wow. We, we did some for Carl Perkins, and um, <laughs> we we did uh, we did a show out in East Nashville at my old high school at Lytton High where we opened for Johnny Cash in 57. Oh, how cool was that? Wow. Yeah, yeah, that was, was that a sock hop? Is that what they called it, where you could only dance in your socks? Uh yeah, some of those were. Um, we used to we we were the first band I think to play Legion American Legion eighty two on Gallatin Road, and and it's funny because now they're doing shows out there again, and that was kind of a uh, they 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 called it a bop hop thing we had, but it was a shoes on deal. But but sometimes <laughs> you know sometimes you had sock hops, you know, but. Uh, Everybody was just fired up over rock and roll, you know, just really excited about it. And uh, you just had to play loud and play hard and rock out, you know. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That I mean, that's back to me. Um, that's back when you know uh, when when it was just starting is when it was the best because it was pure and you could you could ha- it had high energy and you could understand what people were saying. It's a lot different now than it was then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It was a lot, a lot more basic, you know. Just uh, our heroes were people like Elvis, Carl Perkins, Fatsy Domino, Little Richard, Hank Ballard, and the Midnighters, uh, Muddy Waters, uh, Jimmy Reed, all those early roots R and B stars. You know, that that's who we imitated and did covers of their songs. Yes, sir. That's awesome, and, and you know. Uh, working with Elvis, was he, uh, you know, I've never really spoke with anybody other than uh, Mr. Uh, James Burton that actually worked with him. Is he as genuine and nice as everybody says he was? Yeah, I I only worked musically after he had passed, so I didn't get to do a session with him. We did backgrounds on on some of the, the records that, that still needed voices back in uh-huh. 77. But I, in 57, um Three of us casuals, myself, Richard Williams, and Chester Power, who have both passed away. But we went to Memphis 
to promote our, our first record on Dot, and uh, we went to Dewey Phillips' studio uh, at HBQ at the, at the Chiska Hotel, and um, we, you know, we 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 did Wink Martindale's and George Klein's dance party shows that afternoon, that Saturday afternoon, and and we went to lunch after I said, hey, any chance we could meet Elvis? And they said, sure, go down to WHBQ tonight at nine o'clock, and he'll be there. You know, wow, he'll use it. He'll if he has a date, he'll probably take her home and then come back and hang out at the station. So we got down there, and there was a mob of girls and guys and everything, teenagers hanging around in the hotel, and, and uh, there was a Cadillac pulled up across the street where we pulled in, and I said, there he is, guys. So we thought we had missed him. He took off with his date, but Dewey uh, Phillips, we went in and saw him, and he said, but don't worry, Elvis will be back. Elvis will be back. He'll always come back, and so we did the interview with Elvis and with, with Dewey in the control room and walked out of the studio and ran right smack into Elvis, and uh, he was he was as genuine and nice and friendly as you could, you could believe. And he he said, "You guys, I just bought my mama a new house out in Whitehaven," said uh, you, which would become Graceland. And he, he he didn't have it didn't have a name for it. He said, "Y'all go out there tomorrow and tell Uncle Vester to, to let you look around at the house," and. Uh, and you go up and look look around. Tell him I told him told him it was okay. So we went out there. The wow. Next there was nobody out there. In fact, it was it was still the country out in that part of the. It was farms and things out there. And uh, sure sure enough, Esther let us up there, and we took pictures. And there's there's pictures of uh, Richard and Chester clowning around on the front steps of Graceland. And I, just a couple of years ago, I got to take my granddaughters out there and relive that story. It was <laughs> kind of fun, you know. Yeah, that, in other words, you toured Graceland before it was it was even cool to tour Graceland. So you were like yeah. the first guy to ever look around out there. <laughs> well, we we were some of the first folks, and it was he wasn't living there yet. He was still living. I don't know whether it was Lauderdale or what. He he wasn't he hadn't moved in yet. Uh-huh. Boy, what he, a yeah. He painted the walls all these wild colors. Uh, of course, it was pre Priscilla days when she kind of shaped the place up. It was. Uh-huh. <laughs> he, he had the walls like fuchsia and chartreuse and all this. It was crazy. We just peeked, you know we peeked in. We didn't get to go in the house, you know, but we sure. we looked in the windows. Yeah, that's really neat. And, and then later on, another Elvis story was we jammed out in California when he lived, when he lived in um, in Bel Air, uh-huh. in the, the rented house on Perugia Way out there. And we went. He sat down at the piano and and played. Uh, he said, "You ever think about how many songs go like this?" And he started the old R and B, C to A minor, F to G, whatever. Uh, and we did Good Night, My Love, and all these, the still of the night, and all these songs. I mean, it was surreal. If, if anything ever was surreal, he was playing piano, and we did some gospel songs, and it was awesome. I bet that was uh, quite a treat, uh, just to be sitting, you know, sitting there and everybody harmonizing and everything. Um, that's just incredible. I, I <laughs> It's just like, like listening to that. It's just real neat because, 
like I said, the only thing I can live off of stories I've heard about him, you know, and 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 yeah, I've been to Graceland and everything, and and I'm very proud that he, uh, you know, claimed Memphis is his home. But you know, you're the only other person I spoke to who's actually had an encounter with him. So I appreciate you uh, sharing that story with me. Yeah, well, he was he was really super nice. I I think when we got to California, he was he welcomed us because you know we were Southerners and from Tennessee, kind of where he was, and, and uh, he he was uh, just excited to kind of see some homeboys come out there, you know, and um, he he also played us a, an acetate. He pulled out he, uh, on his next, uh, his follow-up, I believe, to It's Now or Never, was Surrender, which was another operatic song, which they they converted to a commercial record, uh, and he, he said, you want to hear my next record? I mean, we were probably the first people to hear that. He he played Surrender for us, which he did a, of course, great, great vocal on it. Wow, that's awesome. You, you, you see, you probably also got to hear that before it was even uh, available to the public. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. <laughs> that's awesome. I was looking also at this long list of people you sing with, which is, if not impressive enough, you know, Elvis, Kenny Rogers, and Chris Christopherson. But let me tell you what impressed me, because I'm 37, and you were Alvin from Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> well, that was uh, that was before you were born. Uh, <laughs> probably about 1964. Uh, oh wow! Yeah. Uh, it, well, that was our first trip around with them. Uh, it was Chipmunks sing the Beatles, and myself and and Ron Hicklin and Al Kemp did the vocals. Uh, uh, David Seville, who was it was Ross Bagdasarian was a friend of ours because I worked at Liberty Records at the time in, in Hollywood. And um, when the Beatles hit, everybody jumped on, you know, anything they could do to cover the, the Beatles to get get in on the bandwagon. You know, he said, oh, man, we got to do a chipmunk record. So we showed up at RCA about 6 o'clock one night and didn't leave till about 6 in the morning. We did the thing straight through. Oh, of course, wow. Of course, back then you had to sing the, the songs half time, like "I Want to Hold Your Hand," and you had to had to hold it out twice as long as they did. Uh-huh. And, then, and then, of course, they, you'd cut it at seven and a half hips and then speed it up to get the chipmunk sound. And uh, man, it was work, but we enjoyed it. And then later on in the '80s, we did Urban Chipmunk with. Uh, Ross, <laughs> Ross Bagdasarian Jr., who uh, Ross passed away at a young age, and he left the uh, the franchise to uh, to his son. And um, along with Larry Butler producing, we did uh, the uh, the urban cowboy songs, chipmunk style. That's too neat. <laughs> yeah, when I read it, I said, "Oh wow, he was Alvin from Alvin and the Chipmunks." What a resume! <laughs> And then, you know, on top of that, you know, you're you're talking about Elvis and everything, and you mentioned the Crickets, which was Buddy Holly's crew and everything. And the last I heard, and, and I don't know if this is a fact or not, but I believe one of the uh, uh, members of the Crickets lives in Hickman County, I think Centerville, Tennessee, because sometimes they play with the Banana Pudding Festival, but I'm not real sure if that's a fact or not. Yeah, he lives uh, – Jerry Allison is who you're talking about, the drummer, the, the guy that did the drum rolls on Peggy Sue and – and, yes, uh, co-wrote "That'll Be the Day" and Peggy Sue and all those. Yeah, Jerry um, 
like myself, just turned 80, and um, he he's pretty much retired now. But he lives, I think it's Lyles, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess is Hickman County. I don't know. Yes, sir. It is out there towards Bonacqua, almost to Centerville. But uh, uh, oh, in in eighty, you said happy birthday. My grandparents both just turned eighty. Yeah, all right. My uh, grandmother is about five months older than my granddad, and he worked at the Ford glass plant for forty years before it got bought out right there in Nashville. So, and they're from the Donaldson area. Oh yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of roots in, in Nashville we're proud of. And, uh, you know, he had a couple of albums that, that uh, he's going to bequeath to me one day, and you're, you're on some of them, so I'm looking forward to that. But oh, I gotta, he, he, won't, he won't turn loose of them right now. He kept them in all pretty pristine condition. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, but, uh, you know, just fond memories and everything. But, uh, yeah, when uh, have you released this album yet, or is there a release date on it? Because, I mean, yeah. like I said, I was fortunate enough to hear it already, but I didn't know if it was available to the public. Yeah, it it is out now. It's it's been out about two weeks, and uh, it's already getting airplay on uh, Americana stations. Awesome. Uh, and uh, this this was really the first week of of reporting uh, from from the stations, but um, it's 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 in the top two hundred. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's one hundred and seventy or something like that. But but uh, yeah, we're looking looking for great things from this this music hopefully yeah it's uh it's, it's a phenomenal work i i've enjoyed all of it there everything on it sounds really great and i, and I like yeah. it you know like i said listen to every bit of it and i haven't thought of a song about montana since meet me in montana but that was refreshing to listen to i hope to make it out there one day um, yeah it's, it's beautiful out there yep uh, but it's a great great song and like i said with the family your family involved in it just makes it that much more awesome you know the harmonies and the performances but um, what, what uh one more question for you? Uh, you seem to be keeping pretty busy, but uh, are, is everything kosher with you from COVID nineteen and all these riots and everything out there? Yeah, yeah. Every everybody um, on uh, in my family is, is uh, and staff and everything here at the creative workshop are are healthy, you know. And um, I I escaped. Uh, Nashville last week and went down and recorded some more with uh, Anthony Crawford down in Loxley, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And I got, had a little break and enjoyed that. But uh, we're back now just uh, getting ready for this grand opening of our fence, you know, of our mural. Drummer extraordinaire Roger Earl is on the Uncharted podcast. He's playing Fog Hat. He's got a side project with guitar phenom Scott Holt called Earl and the Agitators. He's been playing 60 plus years. He impales some of his knowledge on us right here, right now. Here we go. Roger, well, once again, thank you so much for speaking to me. It's a thrill of thrills, and I'm glad you're having a good day. together for your merch room that was that's really neat <laughs> well yeah i mean it was um it's taken a while to get it there um was, uh but i just got uh we just yeah i've just had to finish it off i had to put some shelves up uh we have it it's all sort of like sorted out now not that i have much to do with the merchandise it's the others but they point to me and say could you do that do this and i say no problem actually 
<laughs> I've been off now for what's it? My last date was March uh, 13th out in Las Vegas at the uh, Golden Nugget. Oh, and wow. I've been um, quarantined since then. Yeah. I, I remember you had a birthday uh, during the quarantine. <laughs> Did you do anything to celebrate or did you not just stay home? Well, uh, well, no, I, I stayed home, but a, a number of friends and some fans got organized and they did a drive-by. Um, I was sitting in the garden. Uh, I was, uh, just, it was just my, it was just myself and Linda. And then they said, look, you have to come down to the end of the garden. I said, well, what for? She said, will you just do it, please? And I said, okay. So I go to the end of the garden to the driveway and the, the road there, there's some balloons up. I said, oh, that's nice. And then, I don't know, it seemed to go on forever, like 30 or 40 cars and motorbikes and <laughs> friends and DJ uh, friends of mine, family, uh, drove by and honked their horns. A couple of them gave me bottles of wine and presents. Uh, my, one of my uh, nephews gave me a loaf of bread. Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that he'd baked. Oh. Um, so... Uh, yeah, it was fun. Then, uh, then a couple of my two of my oldest children came in. Uh, we social distanced for a while because they they're living with their mother at the moment, uh, and uh, a couple of other. So there was about six of us in the garden. Social distancing, isn't that fucking weird? Yeah, that's <laughs> the most bizarre thing. It's it seems that it's every they've sort of softened up a little bit here now. Um, I am. I mean, I go. I ride my bike. I walk. I go fishing and stuff. Um, uh, you know, when we're walking down the road, we cross over. Uh, you know, I speak to the neighbours six feet apart. Um, uh, gave them all a couple of bottles of wine. Because <laughs> 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 yeah. I can do that. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think I've, I've been, you know, very fortunate. A lot more so than I, I think a lot of people out there. Uh, to be honest with you, um, I haven't had a April, May, June, and July off since I don't remember. Uh, you know, and that, and that of course is you know one of my favourite times of the year. I mean, uh -huh. April is just starting to get good. You know, turning the garden over. May I planted all my vegetables, and uh, I had a honeydew list an arm long, which I'm just getting to the end of. Uh, uh, but it's been. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I must admit, you know, my happy feet and my hands are getting a little itchy to get back out on the road. But um, I took the first couple of weeks off and didn't do much. But uh, over the last month, I start practicing now every day. I play uh, at least an hour on the pad and sometimes a couple of hours. I, I break it up in between. And uh, it's kind of been fun. I've got a couple of, like... Uh, drum videos from some uh, the, actually the Linda bought for me so you know learning some new stuff working on technique because uh, I had a bunch of um, operations on my hand over the years uh, you know from you know hammering wood on metal and stuff for uh, 60 yeah. years your hands say things <laughs> like excuse me yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that was going to say uh you know, having that much time off because, I mean, it's nothing for you guys to play 70, 80 dates a year. And it's right. got to be a uh, complete 360 uh, or 180 for sure to kind of have some free time, especially this time of year. 
Yeah, and um, as I said, it's fine. I get to go fishing. Uh, I can fish <laughs> actually. I, I can fish off my dock right out the back. I've been catching some uh, striped bass, only small ones, so I put them back. Um, yeah. But it's fun, you know. I sit down and like chill with a glass of wine or a beer, and um, I'm thoroughly enjoying this. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you should every once in a while. You got to stop and smell the roses. No pun intended. You're talking about that garden. <laughs> yeah. And I, I said to my, I said to Linda, I said to my wife, I said, uh, so this is what retirement's like. I said, uh, I'm kind of enjoying this, honey. And she said. But don't get too comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if I'm not mistaken, you have your own uh, line of wines, do you not? Yeah, actually, I'm uh, drinking a Chardonnay, a Focat Chardonnay, as, as we're speaking, as I'm done for the day. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's um, cool. how, do, how do people get access to all that? Uh, go to um, focatsellers.com or go to focat.com, uh, and you can find it through that Um we can sell to most states. Texas apparently is a little difficult. We have sold some down there, but usually it's, um, it has to be through um, uh, a, a liquor store. They, every state has some strange um, rules about selling uh, wine. It's what is it? Uh, uh, tobacco, uh, firearms, and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could just see the alcohol and firearms. I can see how they can lo- you know put those two together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, here in uh, Middle Tennessee, where I live, in Columbia, actually, was one of your uh, bandmates. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, just started, right. they just started putting alcohol in Walmart and Kroger and everything and in grocery stores. So it's a Really? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah, they do that in um, in Florida. Um, and so we have a band house down in uh, Deland, Florida. We have our studios down there. And, uh, of course, Brian Bassett, our leading side player, lives there. Um, Charlie Hewn, our lead guitar and lead singer, lives uh, there. And uh, Rodney O'Quinn uh, lives uh, about 50 miles, 60 miles away from us down there as well in Melbourne. So, oh, wow. <laughs> in fact, we'll go down there about a week before our first date and we'll rehearse for about a week, you know, get our chops back together and make sure we know what we're doing. Sure. What uh, what's your next date? When is your next projected date? I should say. Uh, our first date is um, August first in um, it's in Missouri. Um, I still got a couple of months actually before we actually have to do things. And let me just have a look at my. Uh, yeah, Cross, uh, Cass County Fairgrounds, Pleasant Hill, Missouri. All right. So that'll be our first date. Yeah, that'll be a good that'll be a good kickoff starting point for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll all be ready for it by then. Um, but I must admit, I like having this summer off. This is uh, <laughs> terrific. I don't remember the last time I actually got a real tan from you know working <laughs> in the garden. I've got you know I've got a farmer tan. Uh, yeah, you know, because I keep my shirt on, and uh, it's um, I have to tell you, uh, Joshua, life is good. Life is real good for some, anyway, but it's not for everybody else. It's a nightmare out there. Yeah, it's uh, it's all in uh, yeah, whatever. But you can, if you if you try hard enough, I suppose you can make a good experience out of almost anything. It, you know, in certain circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's um, 
it's horrible out there what's going on. Um, yeah. I've been, because from time, during, you know, uh, a sort of pandemic, I would sort of, you know, get on sort of, you know, do a couple of things for the folks to sort of, and, you know, give my point of view and like tell everybody to be safe and, you know, thank all the first responders and, and the doctors and nurses and people keeping the stores open for us. But it's difficult to know what to say about this other than, you know, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I moved here in like 73, actually moved here. But I've been coming here from 68. And I, re I remember even back in 68, um, there, New York City was, was okay. I mean, I mean, uh, Gene Cornish was a star player from uh, the Rascals. <clears throat> uh, he was friends with our uh, manager at the time, our first manager, Tony. Uh -huh. And Gene Cornish like took us around New York City, took us to like to the jazz clubs, you know, down in Harlem. Um, you know, we got up and jammed, and it was New York City was was cool anyway. But <clears throat> I remember the first times I went down south, not New Orleans. That's another New Orleans is like another country, <laughs> but <laughs> it is. But there there was some serious race issues down there. I mean, with the people down there. I mean, I have a lot of black friends, um, uh, you know, and of course, <clears throat> you know, growing up, you know, most of my musical heroes were black. Not all of them. Jerry Lewis wasn't black. But uh, <laughs> it was, so I didn't really have that. And also my father was, you know, I had black friends growing up in London. Uh, uh, my musical taste, I, I never had that. I was never taught it. It was never shown or heard in my house. I mean, people were people. Um, mm. uh, but I, it's just, basically, it's a fucking sin. You know, um, I was um, reading uh, a book, sort of like a historical novel, and it was, <clears throat> but it was based on r real stories and letters about when they opened up the Ohio Valley. And a lot, a lot of the people came from the New England area. And uh, and how they you know they would they would go to Pittsburgh and then they would cross over the river and like start opening up the state of Ohio and it was interesting to note that Ohio was the first state to ban slavery so uh, you know I mean I, uh, it was in the same in Europe I think the English banned it uh, I can't remember now <clears throat> but I remember them blowing up a bunch of um, fought along the uh, western uh, coast of Africa, that, you know, where the slavers sort of did their business. But, you know, slavery is an abomination. And, I, you know, this country just, you know, we just have to find some way to deal with it. It's, it's a past that we have to reckon with. And what goes on, some of the stuff that goes on today is just, uh, that's why you have so many young people out there saying, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, no, no more. And uh, I admire them for that. I think um, I think we've probably been com too complacent for too long. Oh, listen to me, I'm going on now. Um, I, yeah, I but I, I, yeah, also, I was going to say, I totally agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, the, these voices, I mean, enough's enough. Um, luckily for me, I'm, I'm 37 years old, and 
I didn't grow up like I was with you. I mean, we didn't see, you know, we had, I had friends in school, there were different colors and we didn't really have those issues. So I didn't face it too terribly much, but in any form of it, it does have to stop because uh, if you cut us, we all bleed the same uh, red. We're all human beings. So Yeah. Yeah. But you know, we're, we, we all are with the human race. And, um, I just find it offensive, uh, you know, anybody starts using that kind of language around me. And, you know, I remember working with a couple of guys, you know, in our crew for over the years, and they would say stuff, and I would say, say that again, and you're not working with me anymore. And, yeah. uh, and, I, would, and I would eventually talk to them about it and explain that talking and acting like that is like, it's, uh, and I also think that was, I think a lot of it comes from, you know, what, the way you grow up. I mean, like I said, I was fortunate the way I grew up. Uh, and it, it, it wasn't prevalent in my house. I mean, musicians were musicians, people were people. Um, but I think when young children, you know, when you're young and, and, and it's prevalent in your house and you're growing up, I think that's sort of something that's, I mean, I think in some way every every single one of us has, uh, you know, has some of that in us, you know, whether you're white or black or brown or yellow um, or green or purple. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there is, it's there, but we have to make an effort to stop it and, and to put it, it, it shouldn't be part of our society, especially here in America. I mean, it's, America is, uh, you know, it's a wonderful land. It's my adopted home, and I, I wanted to come here since I was about eight. <laughs> uh -huh. I did. I did. I was gonna uh, stow away on a boat. I don't know what I was thinking. And my older brother is four years older than me, and, and, and we talked about it. And then I was, I was about about eight and a half, and I said to my older brother, "I'm gonna stow away," and he said. That'd be stupid. <laughs> and the, reality, the realities of trying to stay away when you're eight and a half years old. But I was coming to America. I wasn't going anywhere else. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I love this country. And, um, and I think um, there's, there's certain things about it that need to be changed. But, um, yeah, All right, I think I've ranted enough. No, I, no, I agree with you. But speaking of color barriers and everything, I heard through the grapevine. I wanted to ask you about it, but we could tie this into it. Didn't you uh, jam a little bit with Jimi Hendrix and the Jimi Hendrix Experience? Or is there a story about that? Yeah, I um, I auditioned for Jimi. Wow, tell us about that. That must have been something. It was actually. Yeah, um, I when I was about. 17 or 18, I'd all, I would I joined the band um, when I was about 16 with my uh, childhood. Uh, we went to school together with a bass player, Dave Hutchins, was my probably my best friend, and that Dick Howe was the lead guitar player. And the other guitar player and singer was a guy called Ray Dorset. We all grew up together, and uh, Ray Dorset went on to uh, – he was a lead singer in a band called Mungo Jerry. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the summer, they had one hit over here, but in Europe they had probably four or five, you know, top ten singles. Did uh, your brother, I, your brother, play with them as well? Yeah, my brother Colin played piano. Yeah, and and I played a couple of tracks on their first album. Well, cool. Uh, yeah, it was. Well, Jimmy, 
there was a band that I would join when, like, when I was 16 or 17. They'd been playing together since they were like 11 or 12 years old. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the bass player, Dave, we, we were best friends, uh, came down one day and knocked on my door and said, uh, you you want to play drums in the band? Because I think their drummer wasn't all that good or something. And I joined them and I was with them for four years until I uh, left and joined Savoy Brown. But um, <clears throat> during that time, I answered uh, uh, an audition for an audition in the Melody Maker and it was um, Chaz Chandler. And he was putting a band together. It was at the time something like the Small Faces, that kind of thing. So I auditioned. We practiced for about about a month, but never never went anywhere. But I stayed in touch with Chaz Chandler and vice versa. Uh-huh. And I my day job was I was a commercial artist. And uh, he uh, he called me one day at work and said, "Have you heard about?" Jimi Hendrix, and it was in all the newspapers, all the musical papers. And I said, yeah, I mean, I you mean, know, um, Pete Townsend, Jeff Beck, uh, Eric Clapton were all raving about him. Uh-huh. And I guess I was uh, 20 at the time. So I said, yes, yeah. so I went, um, I borrowed my father's car, brought my drums up to uh, London. There was a club. It was, it was a weekday. Um, about midday, we were waiting for the club to open. The club called... Um, Birdland. It was just off of uh, Piccadilly Circus, and mm-hmm. it, as usual, it was raining. And uh, <laughs> there, was, it, uh, there was a line outside, and, and Jimi Hendrix sort of turned up, and um, he came up and started talking to me about uh, some songs he'd written the night before. And he also talked to a few other people that were in line. He got in line the same as everybody else, I guess. And uh, I went down uh, and. Two or three other drummers, I was about six in line, uh, got up and played, and it was my turn. And uh, he just started, you know, he had a stack of marshals, and um, he just started playing. And uh, I have to be honest, I, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> he started, you know, just playing. And yeah. uh, then he started playing a couple of, he played like a slow blues, which I, I knew. Then he played like a, it was like a Red House kind of thing. And he did uh, Johnny Good, and he did like a Bob Dylan song. Uh, he wasn't singing. I don't. I don't recall him singing. But he would play stuff that I was familiar with. Um, actually, he was very generous. I thought with his time. I think I played for about forty minutes or so. But um, I think he made the right choice. Mitch Mitchell was uh, an incredible drummer. Now Jimmy was really cool. Um, I actually got up and jammed with him a couple of times over here in the states. Um, wow! One time. Uh, a club here in New York. I think it was Steve Paul's team. Um, <clears throat> I got up and played with him when I when I first came over here with Savoy Brown, and also um, there was a club in LA. I can't remember where it was. He was jamming with Eric Bird and a few other people, and I got up and played a couple of tunes there and sat. It. But that was about it. It's a, it was a bit hazy back then. <laughs> Purple hazy, <laughs> especially when you were uh, not playing. So uh, yeah, it was. But it was yeah. It's a sad day when we lost him. He was um, phenomenal musician. I mean, he turned the world on its head as far as guitar playing goes, and that's no mean feat. And uh, by all accounts, you know, he was a you know beautiful human being. And anybody who ever got to know him um, said the same thing. Yeah, he was. 
it was it was special. It was sad to lose him, real sad. Yeah, he he went way too young, but uh, yeah. I always love loving hearing tales about him because um, you know live, living here in Middle Tennessee, uh, Billy Cox, the last remaining, yeah. he lives in this area, and I just you know I've always been proud of that connection because they met each other you know in, in the army and everything, and you yeah. know we kind of have a tie into it, just like. Uh, you have a tie-in with my favorite guitar player in the world, Mr. Scott Holt, which I think is the coolest <laughs> thing ever. What a great guy. Isn't he? Yeah. I, I know. I love him. What happened with with Scott was um, we we were working on our, um, our last studio album, uh, Under the Influence, and we uh-huh. had a bunch of songs, but we were about three or four songs short. And um, a photographer friend of mine um, – we were we were talking and he said, well, you know, he introduced, he introduced me to Scott and um, I'd known Scott for a while and uh, and I called him up and said, you want to come down and help us write a few songs for the next album? Uh-huh. And um, it was just me, uh, Brian Bassett, our leading side player, and Scott. And we went down to the studio in uh, Deland, our studio, and um, we just started playing and putting stuff together. But typical musicians instead of um writing three songs we wrote we wrote about 15 or 16. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so uh and then a few other things happened we got a chance to uh myself scott and brian got a chance to record some more stuff uh a studio in uh Nashville, in franklin right yeah uh-huh. and um so that was, then the agitators were born. It, the story goes like this, which I think is a good story. There's a modicum, <laughs> there's a modicum of truth in it. But uh, we'd fin- we were working in the studio in Franklin, and uh, we'd finished for the night, and uh, we opened up uh, some wine, and we were drinking, just listening to the tracks. And then Brian had finished the first bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon, and he started on his second bottle. And that's what happens, Joshua, with wine. When you start on the second bottle, there's that moment of brilliance that wine can uh, sometimes impart to you. And Brian jumped up on the table and said, Earl and the Agitators. And uh, that's, that's, how this, that's how that story goes anyway. <laughs> um, we've done a few days together. The, the problem is... Um, actually trying to sort of you know because fog has so busy um so like getting you know uh, we've done uh, i don't know probably half a dozen dates together <clears throat> and i love playing with scott um, he's got up and jammed with us a few times um in fact i should really call him I, i'm watching him when he does his shows from uh columbia yeah his <laughs> record, store. The record store, yeah um yeah lovely man great guitar player great singer real yeah. talent and yeah, to be as great as he is, he's so nice, and it's to be to be uh, one of my heroes as far as a musician. It's just neat that I know that some days I can rock, I can walk into Variety Records, and he'll just be in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, um, he's fantastic to play with. It's like um, he's, he's so easy to play with. Um, but like I said, you know, we we wrote uh, probably about sixteen, maybe even more songs, like in in literally in like within a week or two. And we had all the, the songs down, and and also like you know finding other material that uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, we really enjoyed it. So of course, what do musicians do once they've got 
you know, like 16 or 17 songs. They go, well, let's start a band. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And my, my manager looked at me and said, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Where are we going to fit an agitator uh, yeah. gigs with Podcat? Uh, well, um, actually, we opened up for ourselves a couple of times. Um, that was interesting. So by the I'm evening, sorry. I was I was pretty tired. But, uh, I was about to yeah, say, that's uh, <laughs> I, I've tried. I've tried to talk some other people into sort of, um, you know, giving Scott a chance to sort of uh, show his word. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he's made it. But um, you know, actual real success hasn't quite come to him yet. But um, it will one day because he's such a great talent. Yeah, he is. And there's no, there's nobody more deserving. But boy, he can eat that guitar up. He sure can. Can't, can't he just? Yeah. He's, always, well, he's a, you know, a Jimi Hendrix fan as well. Who wouldn't be? I am. Yeah, and then of course, uh, you know, cutting the teeth with Buddy Gab. Yeah, he's he's great. Right. Speaking well, of that, that, that's another thing. He introduced me to Buddy, but actually, I met Buddy before. Um, I, pre- I presented uh, some awards. Uh, I was asked to be a presenter at the Blues Awards in Memphis uh, a number of years back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met Buddy then. And I, I subsequently met him a couple of times. It's a quick story. I love telling this story because it's... Uh, Scott was... Um, yeah. Scott came out, out to the island to, to, to see us. And Buddy Guy was playing at the at just down the road in a big uh, theater down there and um scott said well yeah come you know come along so i went along and um you know i said well, i'll introduce you to buddy so we get there and of course there's a line of people waiting to see buddy to get to his dressing room everybody sort of you know has to wait their turn mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh so you know then it, it's my turn and scott introduces me to buddy and of course you know he's a very warm guy it's beautiful and um we sit there and we talk a little bit and i think i reminded him of the fact that i'd met him before and presented him with some awards at the blues uh, music foundation and uh actually i think buddy won, won everything that night except <laughs> except uh piano player and uh, <laughs> i said did you play piano no i didn't actually somebody else asked him that but um and he, and he had this bottle of uh, 100-year-old cognac on the table in front of him. Oh, wow. And he, and, and he saw me eyeing it, and he said, uh, would, you, would you like to try that? And I said, yes, please. <laughs> so he said, you know, help yourself, you know, the glass there. So I poured myself um, a reasonable amount because I wasn't driving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then it was time to go. And... Uh, Scott said to me, he said, Buddy never gives that to anybody. Wow. <laughs> he said, I said, well, you know, Englishmen, they appreciate a fine conduct. Uh, yeah, Buddy's, um, Buddy's beautiful. I mean, I've seen him a number of times. And uh, last time I actually saw him, I think, was he played the House of Blues in New York City before they closed it down. And, uh, yeah, Buddy guy, he's... Uh, is a national treasure for sure. Yeah, that that he is. That's a that's interesting. So, how does a hundred year old beverage keep? Does it taste good? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was 
really nice. I didn't really want to drink anything else that night, so I was <laughs> I, 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 I nursed a hundred year old cognac for uh, wow. most of the evening. Yeah, That's it was. Actually, Scott got up and played uh, three or four songs with him during the evening. Yeah, that's cool. Well, let's um, let's talk about. I understand um, your wife was telling me you guys have a DVD in the works, or it's coming out in November or something. Um, yeah, we do. Uh, our last show last year, we played we played a club. We don't normally play too many clubs, but this opportunity came up. It was a, we did a three day run, and we were most of the time we fly everywhere. But we were driving. We had a, a sprinter van, and uh, my brother-in-law is also a, a limo driver, so he drove us. But you know, they were like seven, eight-hour drives, and um, so we were pretty tired. But anyway, we got a chance to play um, Daryl's house, uh, upstate New York, uh-huh. and it's, it's a club holds about it's about 250 people, sort of like you know, four maniacs playing in your living room. Um, <laughs> but um, they had a terrific um, recording facility there, and they had like I think five camera shoot also already set up. So we said, "Yeah, let's film it." Uh, everybody was a little tired, but sometimes that can be good when you're playing because um, you know um, Roger with his useful, useful, useful uh, exuberance. Um, but it, it turned out really well. In fact, Brian sent me. Um, uh, four or five tracks just have a listen to because he's mixing it at the moment. Another friend of mine um, is editing the video, so it's going to be you know a DVD and a CD. So um, yeah, I was really pleased with it. There was a couple of songs we hadn't recorded before on there, so you know I think that might make it interesting. Um, I always like a live albums, um, so we'll, that, yeah, that should be out sometime towards the end of the year. Another, cool. uh, I've got, I've, I've got to say this about live albums, live recordings. I have to, try I have to find out. Um, but I'm a big fan of Tom Petty. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I've, I've played with him. You know, we did shows together over the years, and uh, he was always so cool. That was that was sad as well, losing him. Yeah. But I I listened to um, Sirius XM. And there's the Tom Petty radio series, and I usually have it on because he plays all this cool stuff, and he'll he'll play some stuff that nobody's really heard before, uh, you know, like um, deep tracks and you know old R&B songs and blues songs. I mean, he's, he's very he's, he's very eclectic. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that impresses me, he has all these live tracks that they recorded live at various shows and. Some of the songs I'd never heard, and they were other people's songs, like they did The Beatles' Taxman and oh, wow. all sorts of stuff. And the sound is incredible. And I'm going, how? And they must have carried their own sort of um, recording equipment with them because the, the the live recordings are fantastic and also the way they play. Um, so I just had to get that in. Tom Petty and his band were uh, were really really great players and their live stuff is incredible do they have any live albums out you know they probably yeah. like that I, I i'm sure they do it's probably been a while since they've released one but I, i'm gonna look it up while we're talking here on the computer but yeah i'm with you i i like uh, i like him uh the heartbreakers and just buying stuff yeah. i thought he's just very versatile oh yeah no, 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 no they, they were great they were great i did um a guest dj um thing for uh Sirius XM for their uh, 
zip to the classic vinyl, I think, or one of them, uh, about a week or so ago. And it was a lot of fun. And they said, well, you can pick like uh, 10, 12 songs. And then I picked them and then I, then I sent it off and I went, shit, I didn't put John <laughs> Betty in there. And of course, you know, you know, and I, then I call, I, I call up my friend who's uh, in, in charge of uh, XM now. I said, Tom Petty has to be on there. And he said, Well, yeah, of course he does. <laughs> uh, so we got to take one off. So no problem. I knocked a fog hat song on the head for Tom Petty. That's <laughs> <laughs> love right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he was, uh, and he was always. I mean, he was so cool. He would make you smile and make you laugh. And his playing and his songs, his lyrics were like very poignant and also really, really funny. Uh, yeah, it was a sad day losing Tom Petty. Really yeah. sad. It was because he, he has influenced a lot of people, you know, in his lifetime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As we were discussing, I looked up the most recent one. Uh, it's called the, the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers Live Anthology. It's not. It's it's all live. It's four CDs. Um, it's uh, oh. uh, 1978 to 2007. So that's uh, written that down. Thank you. Yeah, uh, the, the the vinyl is 125 dollars, but the CD's 20. <laughs> I'm gonna buy the CD. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, was like, <laughs> I like vinyl. You know, don't get me wrong. <laughs> well, no, I like. No, I like vinyl, but it's like. Um, I've done that. I, w I was really pleased with CDs. I mean, eight tracks, I fucking hated. They were horrible. They would break or melt. <laughs> and, you know, and then they would cut off halfway through the song and then come come in again. Uh, cassettes were okay, but they, they had a penchant for sort of breaking or snapping and or not standing up. But CDs, you can mismanage them and they still sound great. They yeah. snap them. Unless you snap them in half, you've got to be real vicious. But uh, so I was pleased with CDs. I'd, I'd probably replace everything I owned uh, on vinyl into CD. Now it's like everybody else listens on their buds, but I'm not so sure about that. Um, uh, I, I like sitting in the living room and cranking up the JBLs, and uh, that's another story. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, another thing about CDs, I learned a little trick. Even if one does get like a little hairline scratch. You can put a light, a little light dab of toothpaste on it, and it'll be good to go. Really? Yeah, I didn't why? know that. I, yeah, I, that was something I learned uh, a few few moons ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, a toothpaste, um, huh? Yeah, just just a little dab of it. I, I'm sure any kind would work. Um, well, let me ask you this, and I appreciate yeah. you with your time. It was a thrill to talk. No worries. I've I'm done for. I'm I'm done for the day, Joshua. I'm off yeah. now. I just uh, thank you. You're one of the coolest guys ever, and it was a thrill. But um. Let's talk about what what kind of as a drummer. I'm a novice drummer, but what kind of kid are you touring with right now? When you get back on the road, what what are you playing on? You play drums, Joshua? Uh, yes, I do. I uh, I haven't played in many years, but once upon a time, I could hold my own. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, drums. Uh, I use uh, DW drums. Um, sure. I'm endorsed by DW or I endorse DW drums. They're great drums. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I endorse uh, pasty cymbals. In fact, um, they're making a special 22-inch uh, ride for me at the moment. They called up uh, about five or six days ago, and they're testing because they made one for me about uh, about nine months ago. 
and uh, there was a couple of ideas that I had. I wanted the actual metal to be a little heavier. It's got three different levels on it. It's got like a big bell, which is clean. And then it has a hammered, like about three or four inches up from the bell. Then, oh, it, wow. has a la- and then it has a lathe hammered all the way to the outside. So you've got like three different kind of sounds coming out of one cymbal. And it also acts as like a, a rather noisy crash. So that can be fun too. Um, yeah, it's gonna, I, I think it, they continually call it a slow ride, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if they're gonna put that on there, but yeah, uh, so that, that, was in, that was fun. Actually my uh, drum tech, uh, Mark Petrocelli, actually helped set that up. And I've, I've been with Pasty since, oh, I don't remember. Um, must be like 20 years or so. Uh, um, but yeah, the terrific people and the symbols are very consistent. But there again, all the symbols are great. I mean, you know, uh, Zildjian's, Savian's, I mean, they're all great symbols. They're all very different as well. But what I like about Pasties is they're very consistent with uh, how they sound. But, um, and they were, uh, it was, it was this, this is the story. You want to hear a story about Pasty? I would love to, because that, that's, right. that's the symbols I enjoy as well. Oh, all right. Well, I was using um, Zildjian symbols uh, because they were, you know, I grew up uh, using them, and um, that's what I did. Um, and as you might be aware, Zildjian symbols aren't all the same. You you ask for an 18-inch crash, and you've probably got, you'll get a dozen of them. They all sound slightly different. Uh-huh. So uh, one of the uh, one of the things that I always like to do was actually go to the factory up in uh, just outside of Boston and go and pick them out anyway. And and I did that for a number of years. And uh, and one day they had a new artist relation person there, and uh, we were in the Boston area with the bus, and I called him up, you know, a couple of weeks before we were going to be there, and he said no. Uh, no, we don't want people coming here anymore and trying stuff, but we'll send them to you. I said, well, I'd really like to hear the symbols, you know, and work, you know, and like see how they are. And I, and also I used to go there and they would like bring out prototypes and you could have fun with it. Anyway, I, this guy was English. can't remember his name. His first name might have been Colin. That's another story. Anyway, <laughs> he, 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 I wasn't allowed to go there and try them. And I was all disenchanted with that. Well, I was, I've been good friends with Bobby Rondinelli since Bobby Rondinelli since he was a kid. And I used to go and see him when he would play around here. This back in like the uh, mid seventies. And uh, I was talking to him about it. He said, Hey Raj, he said, uh, try some patience. These people are just great. You know, they're just great. They'll let you go there and play whatever. So I called up pasty symbols and explained my situation. I would use the audience forever, but, they decided not to let their artists try them out anymore. And they said, you can come and try whatever you want at our factory. And I said, okay. <laughs> that, that was the start of a beautiful friendship. And um, that's why I started using Pasty. And um, I've never regretted it for a day because the people there are fantastic. Um, I have an issue with something or I talk to them about something or some ideas. And uh, yeah, I have a great relationship. I used uh, Promark drumsticks as well. Um, I think it's, what is it? 
it's a Roger Earl model, but I think it's the same as a couple of other drummers used. Can't remember now. But um, they they make great sticks as well. They're nice and even uh, hickory. So um, that's it. Uh, and I used, um, preferably, I used the new uh, DW direct drive pedals. But actually, all their pedals are great. They're 9,000s. Even their first pedals are 300s. In fact, that was the reason I went with DW. I played a couple of their drum kits, like in drum stores and stuff, uh, back in, what was it? Uh, nine, two, 90, uh, uh, about, it was probably about 15, 20 years ago, probably, something like that. Um, how time flies. Anyway, um, I was with, I'd been with Ludwig forever. And um, I'm good friends and still am with, you know, Ludwig. But Bill Ludwig had sold the drum company to Selma Music. Now, these people were just a bunch of bean counters. I'm sorry to say that. I mean, I'm probably giving bean counters a bad rap. But <laughs> <laughs> somebody has to count beans. But I would call them up and say, look, especially their... Um, uh, symbol stands because I was on the road all the time traveling as I, and I you know at the time we had our own bus and the, the stands wouldn't always work maybe it was my drum tech at the time's issue but they they, they would break the, the kind of where you screw them in they, they'd use this soft kind of metal anyway I called them up and left a couple of messages that I needed some stands or some parts for them and um they never returned my call. Though. I would always get like a, a an answering machine, and um, you know, not that I expected them to call me right back, but you know, I've been with them since 1973, I think. Anyway, um, and I always had a great relationship with Bill Ludwig. Still do. We're still good friends, and I see him regularly if I'm anywhere near him, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But I, I wasn't, you know, I was kind of disappointed. They and they, and I, I, a rim had got bent on one of my toms, and I called them up, and and, and they wouldn't return my calls. or didn't, they, they, they didn't do anything. It was like um, they didn't really, they they kind of lost interest, or maybe they were just finding their feet. I don't know. So I'd, all, I'd already played a number of uh, DW kits, and I loved the way that the finishes and uh, they sounded great. So I called up uh, the factory, talked to John Good, and uh, he said, well, come on down and, you know, we'll walk around the factory. So I did. I spent a day there. And um, when you're a drummer, you would appreciate it. If ever you get a chance to go to Oxnard, California, if you call them up and ask them if you can, you know, go, you know, come and walk around the factory, explain to them who you are and that you have, you know, uh, that you can actually sort of maybe even promote their instrument. It's, <laughs> it's, it's an absolute joy that they make everything there. They make every single thing there. Uh, and if they don't make it there, they make it somewhere else. But uh-huh. it's, it's they're in everything, you know, the thread on the, the lugs and everything. Every, they do oh, wow. everything. Uh, and they have, you know, they have a custom paint shop, a custom shop for this. And you can order, you you can actually get drums to have the actual note you want if you're that fussy. You know, really? you can have, a, yeah, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, sharps and minors or whatever. It, take, it would take a while to get it, but you can do that. 
And uh, yeah, I know it's amazing. Whereas other drum companies just say, well, you know, you get what you get what comes off the line. But they yeah. make everything they make everything by hand, everything. And the people who work, they they've even got guitar players working on drums. What do you wow. think about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it's different. But, but if if you get a chance, go to the and they they do tours. And uh, if you explain to them who you are and that you want to sort of write about the product, it, it's absolutely fascinating. They make everything. They make the pedals there. Wow. It's like and. Uh, yeah, no, they they and they've been fantastic. The drums are amazing. <laughs> My new drum kit is uh, it's mahogany and maple shells. You know, mahogany, maple, mahogany, maple. It's a uh, seven ply, mm-hmm. and uh, they use Remo DW Remo heads. Uh, it's uh, it's what they call um, stainless steel finish. It's paint, but it looks like stainless steel. Yeah, and black and black hardware. And uh, yeah, they make uh, the drums are absolutely incredible. And and when I'm on the road, if I can't use my own drums, I have a a drum. I only use a single bass drum when I'm on the road. If I use somebody else's kit, you know, yeah. from one of the the rental companies, because trying to tune two bass drums is you know it, it, it takes a little, it takes a while to get that right. So having yeah. just one, I I use a double pedal. Yeah, that's what uh, I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I my own kit. I have uh, two bass drums, twenty-two and a twenty-three, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but um, they're DW. They're they're, uh, they're fantastic drums, um, and the their pedals, are, especially the new ones, the um, direct drive pedals. They're like Ferraris for the feet. They're just incredible. <laughs> you should pick up. You should pick up drums again. But there again. Where do you get to practice, right? Absolutely. Just uh, I, well, I work two two blue collar jobs, and then I podcast, and it's just it's who who finds the time, you know. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right now, I just uh, what I like to do, and I get a lot of pleasure is talking to uh, people like you who are living legends, and they can just tell me all <laughs> the stories. <laughs> Uh, stories. Oh, yeah, I've got lots of stories. Yeah, uh, but I'm always guilty of like if I'm driving or something, I'm I'm tapping that uh, steering wheel. I'm, it'll never get out of my bloodstream. <laughs> yeah. Um, when did you start playing? Um, I started. Uh, let's see. For my birthday, when I was 12, I got a drum set. Really? Yes. Your parents bought you a drum kit. They well, my father is a musician, so it was uh, he was very glad that I was getting interested in music. Um, you and, had good parents, Joshua. Oh yes, absolutely. My my mother, uh, you know, she made sure I you know got lessons and yeah, you know, she encouraged and she was great. And when my dad was home and uh, you know just uh, you know I, my thing was is that the kind of music that I liked was the generation ahead of me, like your music and like the Beatles and. And you know the Beach Boys and things like that. So I cut my teeth on the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I had really cool parents who my parents um, encouraged me. Well, there was always music in our house. My my father played piano. <clears throat> my mother could sing. Actually, the piano was my mother's, but she gave up uh, when she was young. My father was self-taught, um, and that wasn't his job. Though he did apparently. Um, before World War Two broke out, 
parent, I, and I subsequently I learned this after he passed. My aunt told me that he used to play. She called it a jazz band, but it was probably like a, you know, a big band, a quintet or something like that. <clears throat> and he learned to play, you know, just by ear. Um, oh wow! There was always, there was always music in the house. Um, my father took me to see my first real concert, Jerry Lee Lewis, in 1960, 61 or 62. Some, I was only about 13 or maybe 14, something like that. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, my parents, they, you know, um, we lived in, dad worked seven days a week, you know, to support the wife and three kids. Um, uh, but he was, um, he was a really cool man, actually. Um, I don't think I appreciated it as, as that much until uh, <clears throat> way too late, but that's another story. Um, yeah. I, I think you do that when you're growing up, right? I don't think you appreciate your parents, especially yeah. if they're really cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I got a, a whole new respect uh, for, for mine, especially my mom, after I, yeah. became, I became a dad myself. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. Once you become somebody's parent, you're like, oh, so this is what you went through. (laughs) Hip hop phenom Just Bad is on the podcast. Just dropped a brand new album titled XXV. You can get that bad boy wherever you listen to music. He's next on the Josh Belcher Uncharted podcast. So I got Just Bad on the line with me, uh, rapper, hip-hop uh, artist extraordinaire. I uh, discovered you, like I said, through social media on Facebook. A friend of mine shared above it all, and I just thought a uh, phenomenal uh, contribution to the cause, man. What uh, Did you just share that on a whim? Did you know it was going to blow up like that? Uh, You know, I put the – it was a planned single. It was a planned single. I put it out. I put a little marketing behind it, and, you know, it it, 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 it did well. It did well. Super song, very, very inspiring. I, I like the I like the story behind it. I like the the flow. You can just get with it. I, I put it on my Spotify. I listen to it while I'm at the gym. <laughs> appreciate, appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and start from the beginnings um, and and uh, tell people how hip hop got introduced to you and where where did the passion start exactly for you in your life? Uh, well, I've always been a fan of hip hop, and then um, you know, I think I started kind of trying to write raps in the second grade. I just kind of did it on and off, you know, freestyling at school. And then around 2007, 2008, when everybody started kind of blowing up on MySpace and YouTube, being that I was already interested, that's kind of when I started to put music out. And so from there just to to now, it's just been putting out music and really just refining refining my sound, refining my craft. The passion has always been there because it's just kind of always been an outlet. Listening to music is kind of, one of my favorite things to do when I have nothing else to do, you know, I put on some headphones and just chill out. So that's kind of where the passion comes from. I'm with it, yeah. And you're so uh, you're so natural and smooth that it's almost like this is what you were born to do. So I figured you said second grade. I figured this has been in your blood your whole life. So yeah, yeah kind of, yeah, yeah. So um, and then I was like, before I got on the phone with you, I was checking out some of your socials. You're about to drop a new album. Tell us about that. Yeah, I got a brand new album drops in a. Uh, Tomorrow, actually, well, tonight nice. technically at midnight. Yeah, it's called that. It's called Twenty Five, and uh, it drops. And I've been I recorded it in about two weeks. Uh, wow. I recorded I recorded above it all in about uh, in March, but I think I finished like the bulk of the project in like two weeks in April. 
And so, you know, because we've been quarantined in the house, nothing else better to do, you know, and I have my own studio equipment. So I cranked out that project, and uh, it's just kind of a snapshot of where I'm at in my life. You know, that's kind of what all my projects are, just a snapshot of where I'm at in my life and what I'm currently going through. Yeah, right on. And and I I think, uh, you know, with this quarantine, artists such as yourself, uh, you know, just – being able to solely focus on that because we're all stuck in the house. I think I think it's going to sound really awesome. I think it's going to be quite a quite a project because, like you said, you had a lot of time to specifically uh, accomplish what you wanted to in this album, just kind of being you know quarantined. Yeah, I think it will. I think music, you know, will will come out differently by the end of this because you know they're saying we might not really get back to somewhat normal to you know next year sometime, and I think that a lot of times before. Like a lot of the the the, the popular music, so a lot of people were just uh, hearing it and not really listening to it. But especially yeah. now with everything going on, like people are looking for substance. So I yeah. think this will be kind of like a change in the regard. Where if you don't have the substance, I don't think people will really tune in. Yeah, because uh, you know, right now it's just going to be like you said. Uh, it's just going to be uh, the release of the album. Uh, there's not really going to be doing a lot of touring with it just yet. Uh, do you have any dates on the book anytime soon? Nah, man, nah. It, with with everything that's going on, there can be no touring. So I might end up. This is my second project, but I dropped a project in January called "From the Heart to the Soul." Uh-huh. So uh, you know, this is my second project, and you know, depending on if the music and the inspiration hits me again, I might put out a third one. So yeah. it just really just depends <laughs> on. Yeah. You know, are you doing any like uh, like uh, Instagram or Facebook live concerts where you do like a concert? You know in your own space or whatever? I'm thinking about doing that. I think I want to kind of grow a little bit more and get people a little bit more familiar with the content. But I am Uh definitely thinking about doing a lot of that. I do a lot of, like, music creation sessions on uh, Instagram Live, do social sometimes, and people really seem to enjoy just seeing the creative process. So definitely, Uh you know, either going live during the creation process or put it in a video format might be something that I do. Yeah, right on. Um, another thing I found interesting, uh, when I opened your website, the first thing I read is I define my flaws, uh, and that really kind of struck with me, and I wanted to ask you in return, could you discuss that statement? Why did you post it? That's like the first thing you see uh, in that picture of you right as you open the website. Mm-hmm. So I define my flaws uh, because I, I'm an artist, you know, with a disability. I kind of look at it kind of like I define it, and it necessarily doesn't define me. So, yeah. like, you know, there's no big references. I might make a few small references in music here or there, but I kind of want to, because there's kind of a stigma when you think about people with disabilities that people aren't too aware of. So it's just kind of like, I want to be able to kind of redefine what it is to kind of live with a disability and, you know, what it is to kind of operate normal. So that's just kind of what defining my flaws is. It's like, yeah, this person has this and this, but he's also this other person. And so that's just kind of like a redefinition of, you know, that. Yeah, well, I'm just gonna be I'm just gonna be honest with you, like, uh, you know, uh, there's, you know, I don't even think about disability because that music's on point. That <laughs> there's no disability to me when it comes to, to them rhymes, man. They're right, they're right on the the money, and, I, and I'm a real big fan. I can't wait. Like I said, I just read about this album, just looking through it on social media, but uh, be able to download it tonight, right? Where where can we get it at? Because I'll definitely get my own copy. Uh, so it'll be everywhere. If you stream music, it'll be on Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Spotify, 
uh, you can stream it on YouTube if you like. It'll be everywhere. You just type in Just Bad and uh, XXV. Cause I think I put 25 in Roman numerals, and it should okay. pop up. Right on. Definitely. Yeah, cause I get my stuff through Apple. I'm glad it's going to be there. That's where I'll be downloading it later. Okay. Um, yeah, let's, uh, let's, um, uh, let's discuss, you know, obviously right now our, our country's going through some crazy stuff with, with riots and protests and, and Black Lives Matter and everything. Uh, w- what are your thoughts on, on us as, as what we can do to better unify, um, you know, human beings right now in the world with everything that's going on? I think right now what, what it's going to take, I think it's going to take a collective effort from people of all walks of life, of all races, rich and poor. I think sometimes, like, in order for us to truly see change on all sides, you know, like, we, regardless of how we feel about each other, we all need each other to coexist. You know, it just can't be one people, and it just can't be another people. We all need each other. With that being said, you know, I think just the unity is going to take all of us, and it's going to take us put, it's going to take us, like, it's going to take true bipartisanship. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's going to take yeah. everybody to just say, you know what, let's come to the table. Let's agree to disagree on some things, but let's at least treat each other decently. We don't all have to be friends. I don't ever think that the United States or the world is going to be a utopia, but yeah. I think if we can get to a place where we can agree to disagree on a certain certain things. Like, I have friends that, you know, may have different political views than me. But I know some people that just don't even like to sit down at the table with some of these people. And for some reasons I understand, but it's like if you don't, then we're never going to understand that that point of view. Like I always say, you shouldn't really, like a lot of people, we have like cancel culture where we ready to get rid of people. And it's like when you behead a person almost, you just scare other people who feel that way. You never really change perspective. And I think a lot of people are just looking to kind of like hunt people and I don't necessarily think that's the best way. I think that we should look at trying to understand their perspective, no matter how crazy it may be, and then trying to get them to understand ours so that we can change their opinion on some things. And so maybe they can change our opinion on some things. So. Yeah. Oh, man, that, that's poetry in motion. I agree with you 100%. Uh, I wish we could all be like that because, like I said, oh, I haven't told you yet, but I'm just a country white boy from Middle Tennessee, and uh, I mean, you know, I, I just listen to great music, and, and I'm a fan of yours. I just wish we could treat the world as we do, uh, you know, being fans of music. And I think we'd all be able to get along a lot better. Yeah, yeah, I think we would too. Yeah. Well, hey, my friend, uh, I appreciate your time. Tell everybody how they can link up with you as far as like online and everything, and then I'll be getting this album uh, either tonight or in the morning when I wake up. All right. Well, all of my socials are just bad music. J U S B A D D music, uh, all one word, and then you had a website that's www.justbadmusic.com. That's where you can reach me. Thank you for having me, man. All right, that's a wrap on this week's podcast, heading into year number two. I want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for listening, because without you, there'd be no point in making a podcast. So I'm really, really grateful. If you keep listening to them, I'm going to keep making them. If you know anybody that think you make an awesome guest, hit me up as always on joshbelcher at hotmail.com. Special thanks to my extraordinary guests, Roger Earl, Buzz Kaysen, Just Bad. And I want you to remember, as always, I love you for you and where you're at in life. Have an extraordinary week, and we'll catch you later down the line. Okay, this is Josh Belcher, over and out. <laughs>